been a bizarre back half of the year for the WSL's WCT, and I've actually been remiss to not postscript both Surf Ranch and France. Both were a result of time constraints. Um, I'm still learning how to manage my time as things get busier and busier around here. But I was actually traveling during those events, so I really just kind of didn't have time to analyze it all and put my thoughts to paper. But at any rate, I will recap what's transpired since my Tahiti Pro postscript, and I'll cover what just went down in Portugal. But first, these postscript episodes are supported by the Finn Rental Service called Fanatic.com. They ship fins to your house. It's $10 monthly, and that not only covers the uh, fin rental, but it also covers all shipping costs back and forth. You can keep the fins for as long as you want, and you just manage a queue on their website. So when you send fins back, they automatically ship the next set of fins from your queue. Super easy to manage, and they stock all the main fins from all the major fin companies. Fanatic.com is the website, but you have to use our promo code, which is the word podcast, if you want to support this show. And when you do that, you actually also get your first month's rental completely for free. So fanatic.com, our promo code is podcast, and I will thank you in advance. And without further ado, here is my postscript to the Mayo Rip Curl Pro Portugal. When we left Tahiti, Felipe was in first, Jordi in second, Chloe in third, and Gabriel Medina was in fourth after a narrow loss to Owen Wright at Chopu, where surfers were throwing themselves over the ledge into heaving blue water barrels over shallow reef, trading eights, coupling courage with ocean attunement, asserting athleticism to prove superiority over their foe. And then... They went into a brown water basin surrounded by a dusty cow pasture in central California. And when I mustered the interest to watch, every five minutes the wheezing sound of the train that's required to generate the artificial wave would wake me from the slumber that was induced by the surfing and the general lack of action, the complete lack of rivalry and drama of the Surf Ranch Pro. With completely predictable waves, maneuvers, and even results, along with an indecipherable contest format, which by the way, uh, not only indecipherable to us, the viewers, but also indecipherable to the competitors themselves and the commentary team, as was comically revealed in Stab's no contest video. So by eliminating the key interesting element in surfing, that is its unpredictable nature, and then trying to shoehorn a completely contrarian event format into the world title race, the WSL effectively lost my viewing interest in not only the Surf Ranch Pro, but also partially in the title race and the rest of the season at large. And by the way, as you know, I've been closely tracking the narrative of all of these things throughout the season, but it really did feel like the WSL halted the story Uh, at Surf Ranch, handed me a different script, a very predictable one, and now I'm left to meld together these two stories with a brand new number one ranked surfer who, by the way, was a foregone conclusion before the Surf Ranch event even started, and then very bizarrely, John John Florence still in the top five, even though he hasn't surfed since Brazil. 
but alas, all the predictability that I'd criticized in the basin was completely upended when the World Surf League went back into the actual ocean. Listen to the men's quarterfinals from France. It was Leonardo Fioravanti, Jack Freestone, Jeremy Flores, and then much less surprisingly, Italo Ferrer. Gabriel Medina botched his heat and lost to Ace Bucken in the round of 16, as did Jordi to J-Flow. Felipe lost to wildcard Mark Lacomere and cited back pain. The remaining title hopefuls to add value to their campaigns were Chloe Andino and Italo Ferreira. Jeremy Flores won the event by surfing the exact same way he was surfing it in 2008. This catapulted him like a time machine back into the top 10, where, by the way, he was still positioned behind John John Florence. Did I mention how bizarre things are right now? So leaving France, the rankings read in order from first to fifth, Gabriel Medina, Felipe Toledo, Jordi Smith, Idolo Ferreira, and Chloe Andino. And I had really hoped that my waning interest in the season was simply a reflection of me, my travel schedule, and the time difference between Europe and California. But the Mayo Rip Curl Pro Portugal, how's that for a name, by the way? It kicked off with yet another whimper. Sloppy surf, sloppy performances. Only two surfers scored more than 13 points in the opening round. And plagued with a really bad forecast, the opening day continued into round two to take advantage of the swell despite the unfavorable conditions. And again, as I've stated all year long, both of these rounds are run only to dispatch four surfers. So to continue my illustration of the World Tour's bloat, I'll go ahead and read the four surfers that we eliminated with all of that time and resource. It was 24th ranked Ezekiel Lau, 32nd ranked Ricardo Christie, who broke his flawless streak of 17ths to log his very first 33rd of the season, along with Ryan Callanan and Seth Moniz. As the conditions improved towards round four, the swell also diminished, and so Jordy Smith scalped two different Colapinto brothers in small but clean waves. Kanoa beat Kelly, and then heat five of round four saw Kaiwa Belli versus Gabriel Medina, and it turned into a highlight heat and a pivotal moment for the entire season, not at all because of the waves nor the surfing, but because of an interference that Gabriel incurred, eliminating him from the event, his first place ranking, and with it, sending the world title race to Pipeline. And I could really devote an entire show to this, but the entire debacle has already been covered ad nauseum, and I already did a deep dive on spit and the grit. So I'm going to focus more on the important details here and then offer maybe more than a tiny bit of conjecture, my own conjecture. But basically what was happening, what happened was that Gabriel was dominating the heat and eight minutes remained. He and Kayo split a peak and ended up 150 yards away from one another. They both paddled out from where they completed their respective rides. Kayo made it to the lineup first, so the priority judge gave Kayo priority. The WSL posted it on the priority disc and it is visible for both competitors to see. And then they also announced it over the loudspeaker. Kayo then made his way towards Gabriel Medina because that's where the better peak was and where he actually took off on his wave that he had previously surfed. So Gabriel Medina would later argue that he thought that since Kayo arrived to that portion of the beach to where that peak was second, he presumed 
that he had priority despite the verbal announcement and the fact that the visual cue showed that the priority was actually with Kaio. So the very next wave came and with deeper positioning and a deemed priority, Kaio paddled out towards it, but Gabriel blocked Kaio's path towards the wave. So Kaio stopped short, spun, and then paddled towards the beach to catch the wave. Gabriel still partially was in Kaio's path for the direction that he wanted to go on the right and thereby impeded Kaio's path and even bumped rails with him while paddling and also while Kaio was getting to his feet. The judges immediately deemed it as an interference against Gabriel Medina, which eliminated one entire wave score. Kaio was still left needing a score, which he eventually got and then won the heat. Gabriel flailed his arms at the decision, seemingly upset, and after the heat, he actually went and spent 20 minutes with the judges, presumably stating his case, reviewing footage, and asking for explanation. The round and the event finished without the commentary team so much as revisiting the topic of what very clearly seemed to be a controversy. The controversy, however, did erupt into a firestorm online through two of the next six lay days. And it was all that really anybody discussed. And to the casual viewer, it seemed that Gabriel had made a huge priority blunder. That is until Gabriel took to Instagram and argued that the priority judges had mistakenly given Kyle priority prior to the interference. So Gabe argued that he, in fact, got to the lineup first after they paddled out from their previous wave. So because he presumed that, he never checked the priority disc. And that is why he went on the wave, which in reality, he didn't actually go on the wave. And that'll become important when I do deliver my own opinion on uh, the way that things unfolded. So Gabriel further stated on his Instagram that, quote, I hope my case will be reevaluated because there has been an error, end quote, in essence, blaming the priority judge. The WSL responded publicly on their Instagram the following day, and they stated that they have extensively reviewed all angles and that there was, in fact, no error. Kyle paddled into the lineup first, received priority justly, and then repositioned down the beach next to Gabriel, and the WSL posted footage of multiple time-coded angles to illustrate their version of the events, which are, in fact, the reality. So even if the priority judge had made a mistake, it's still the competitor's responsibility to check the disc and to verify priority. So in short, Gabe's failure was the result of him not doing his basic due diligence. But I'd still like to present my own version of what I think happened. I don't believe that Gabriel ever thought that he had priority in the first place. I think he knew that Kayo had priority. He thought that wave had scoring potential. And so he was attempting to block Kayo from getting into the best positioning to get the score. And in his attempt to block, he bumped rails, got the interference, and then manufactured a story that he was underinformed and that the priority judge had made the mistake. I believe this firstly because Gabriel has a long history of implementing this exact same paddling blocking technique. He did it to CJ Hobgood at Bells in 2012, paddling and sitting actually right in front of CJ's line while CJ was paddling into a set wave. CJ got to his feet, looked back, threw his hands up at Gabe, looked to the judges, threw his hands up at the judges, 
but the judges didn't have a rule for that type of blocking in place. So CJ took matters into his own hands and he outsurfed Gabriel for a win in that heat. It happened again in heat six in the round of three at the Quicksilver Pro Gold Coast in 2015, which is strangely missing from the heat analyzer on worldsurfleague.com while all the other heats from that event are still posted. Anyway, not only did Gabe attempt that same blocking technique against Glenn Hall, he went on to lose that heat as well, and then he used the F word when telling his version of the incident in his post-heat interview. The WSL then fined him for the expletive as it is a violation of their athlete code of conduct. Gabriel then did the exact same paddle blocking technique against Kaloe Andino at Cloudbreak a few years ago. And this time it was actually so egregious that the WSL created a new rule just to prevent it from happening again. And I want to just be clear. What Gabriel is doing in these instances is when he doesn't have priority and he sees that the priority surfer is paddling towards a wave with scoring potential, he'll paddle with them or in front of them to block or force them to take a different path to the wave. This is usually while the priority surfer is paddling out to meet the wave, they're angling for the best position of takeoff and approach. It might be, you know, to backdoor peak to get barreled. And all the priority rules prior were designed for once the surfer is aimed towards the beach paddling into the wave. And Gabriel was implementing a technique where he jeopardize or more specifically impede the priority surfer's approach and access to the wave. So not necessarily paddling into the wave facing the beach, but oftentimes paddling out to the wave. And while he's gotten away with it for years, he tried it again with Kayo, but Kayo, knowing the rules, now favored him. He never backed off and neither did Gabriel. And of course, they bumped rails, made contact, which made it super easy and cut and dry for the judge's decision. Now, all of that history helps provide context for my theory that Gabriel is disingenuous about thinking that he had priority. But the next super obvious bit of information is quite a bit more damning. And that is simply that if Gabriel truly thought that he had priority, he would have just surfed the wave. He saw that Kayo had intent to go, so Gabe would have welcomed that, not challenged it at all. He would have just stood up on the wave and forced the interference on Kayo, who would have been behind him. If you need evidence of this, you can check every single heat that Gabriel has ever surfed on tour. When he has priority, he paddles into each wave with impunity and he surfs it. He never so much as looks at his competitor. But in contrast, and in this scenario with Kaio Abeli, Gabriel never even looks down the line of the wave. His sole focus is on Kaio's actions. So it's very evident to me that Gabriel attempted a blocking maneuver that we've seen him implement for seven years, one that the WSL implemented a new rule to prevent, and he got called on it. And rather than accepting the ruling and perhaps even admitting to his desire to test the limits of the rules because he's a more fierce competitor than anybody else, he opted instead to throw a tantrum, manufacture a fake story, and then shift the blame to the priority judges. And as a result, Kaio Belli woke up the next morning with death threats in his Instagram direct messages, which led to a bunch of other pros taking to Instagram and pleading for a ceasefire and a calming of tempers. 
Now, all of this may sound like I'm chastising Gabe. I am not. I actually love this. I wish that I had enough material to do impassioned side rants in every podcast, but I don't because one of the only promises that pro surfers actually bring with them to the championship tour is talent. And we're lucky if they ever even bring competitive desire, which very surprisingly, some don't. Very few actually bring drama, most avoid it. And the most that we get for personality is a novelty mullet provided by Mikey Wright, maybe a beard, thanks to Wade Carmichael. Maybe somebody playing guitar on Instagram qualifies as personality. Or better yet, somebody will just wear a hat Anything other than their sponsor's ball cap, maybe just like a full-brimmed hat so that Joe Turpel can go on for days about how cool that person's style is. So to have somebody like Gabriel, whose personality, desires, and bloodlust is emblazoned through every body movement and all of his actions, this is a pure delight for the viewer. It's a boon for the WSL and their ratings, and they should really be leaning into it at every chance. They should be zooming in on Gabriel's face. They should be encouraging the commentary team to just guess what's happening, to not have all the information, but to just question the controversy that all of us are questioning as viewers. What Gabriel's failed to realize is that hubris can lead to entitlement, a warped delusion of how the rules do or don't apply, and an underestimation of one's opponents. So if Gabriel can actually harness all of his talent and passion and then block out his momentary emotional outbursts from derailing all of his legitimately good work, then he would be very hard to beat at every venue on tour. But We have a long list of athletes from lots of other disciplines who have exhibited very similar characteristics and they have all become their own worst enemy. Now, I say all of this um, recognizing that when Gabriel lost to Owen Wright in Tahiti this year, I did see a completely new element of humility and deference to Owen, which I did talk about here on Postscript and over on Spit. And I see that as an indicator of maturity, uh, discipline over one's emotions, and a harbinger for a potentially long list of world titles, but I really haven't seen it since. And I'm hoping that maybe we see it challenged at Pipeline yet again. But anyway, back to the narrative of this event. It finally came to a conclusion seven days later, which is how long it took for the swell and the weather to align. The waves won't end up on any highlight reel, uh, they were shoulder to head high peaks, somewhat barreling. Title hopeful Chloandino lost to other title hopeful Jordy Smith in the quarterfinals. Kanoa rose to the occasion by beating Felipe Toledo in conditions that heavily favored Felipe. That could be due to the back pain that he cited over in France. The heat of the day was actually Idolo Ferreira and Jack Freestone, who has found new dad strength and passion while in Europe finishing third in France and fifth in Portugal. Jordi beat Kanoa in the semis and Idolo beat Caio in the semis in semifinal number two. This third place finish for Caio all but solidifies his qualification for next year's tour. He's technically not even on tour this year, despite having surfed every single event. He's been surfing as a replacement for various surfers, Mikey Wright at times and then Adriano at other times. 
And then I've also posited a theory in the postscript for the very first event of this season that Jordy Smith was actually setting a marathoner's pace for the season, a slow and methodical improvement of results that will ultimately crescendo towards pipeline and that his 70% surfing will win most heats. Maybe he would dial it up to 80% occasionally, uh, maybe when he gets into a final series, but he doesn't want to set expectations in the judge's mind by going full bore at every stop like Felipe does. So whether that was intentional or not, it really does seem that that's kind of how the season has transpired for Jordy. However, without that climax that I've kind of been waiting for, I've never seen him give 100%, and he certainly hasn't won an event yet. This second place finish in Portugal ties his other best result, which was a second at Rio. Again, we've never really seen him look ferocious. I would have loved to have seen some semblance of intensity in the final against Idolo. But instead, Jordy surfed his first ride of the opening minutes of the final very conservatively to a 6.17. The wave had a steep wall and a great end section, all the potential for an 8 or a 10-point ride. But he opened the ride with a floater that I could do. And then he did a mediocre carve and ended it with an end section floater. And by the way, let me remind you, this is the final of the second-to-last event of the year where he has his best shot yet at a world title against Idolo Ferreira, who any analyst would tell you, you're going to need more than two sixes to beat. So the fact that Gabriel surfed that wave the way that he did was either the result of a complete mental lapse or just zero coaching and heat strategy. And then within one minute from Jordy surfing that wave, Idolo answered back in the exact fashion that you'd expect from someone wanting to win a contest and a world title. It was with a single maneuver that net him a 10-point ride. It was a full rotation backside air, a bigger, faster, less predictable version than one that we'd seen him do the entire event. And with that and 30 minutes left on the clock, it seemed that Jordy had acquiesced defeat. His 6.17 remained his best score, his only meaningful score, and Idolo, on the other hand, backed up his 10 with an 8.43, along with two other 7.8s, making him a two-time consecutive Mayo Rip Curl Pro champ. Congratulations to Idolo Ferreira. Leaving Portugal, there are five men still in contention for the world title. Chloe Andino in fifth, Felipe in fourth, Jordi in third, Gabriel down one spot into second, and Idolo up three spots into first. Those bottom three will have to hope that Gabriel and Idolo lose early at pipe so they can make up ground. And given the less than 1,000 point spread between Gabriel and Idolo, a tie would favor Idolo. And the reality is that Gabe will probably need to beat Idolo by more than two heats to clinch. But the stats show that Gabe never loses at pipe before the quarterfinals. So it seems to be an Idolo and Gabriel race. With Idolo positioned better going into the event, but a less successful track record at the venue. So I presume that all of these guys will be logging serious water time at Pipe for the next month solid, and hopefully we'll see some bad blood and drama get stirred up in those free surfs. The Billabong Pipe Masters begins on December 8th. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I look forward to seeing you there.